Welcome to Away From The Keyboard. We give you a glimpse into the lives, interests, and tech behind today's technologists. Please join our hosts, Cecil Phillip and Richie Rump, as we get away from the keyboard. Welcome to Away From The Keyboard, where technologists tell their stories of how they started, how they grew, how they learned, and how they unwind. My name is Richie Rump, and joining me on the other end of the microphone is my co-host, Cecil Phillip. What's going on, Cecil? Not much, Richie. I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. So I understand you came back from a trip recently. I did. I did. So this past weekend was actually my birthday, January 16th. Happy birthday, bro. Thank you. Thank you very much. So me and the family, we went up to the Kennedy Space Center and uh, we made a weekend of it. We had a pretty good time. Excellent. So, I, you know, me and my family, as I've said many times, love the Kennedy Space Center. What was like the one thing that this was jaw dropping and you said, wow, that was awesome? I have to say the Atlantis exhibit was was phenomenal. You know, I have a three year old and Cameron like he he loved it. He even made me go and buy like a little miniature replica of Atlantis. He he loved it so much. <laughs> but it's such a fantastic experience to actually go in and actually have the shuttle right there in front of you suspended and you can actually look in and see what you know, see what it looks like really up close. Yeah, I think that the the cool thing is that then sometimes I don't know if they were there, but sometimes they have people who actually worked on the shuttle standing right there, and you could actually talk to them too. So that was that's pretty cool if they're they're actually doing that at at that particular time. Oh, nice! No, they they weren't there when we went, but that that sounds like a pretty cool thing. Now I'm gonna have to go back again and and see if I can meet some of those geeks. Yeah, it's usually on the weekend, so like a Friday or a Saturday or something. But um, yeah, it's pretty cool when they are um, out there doing that. So what else we got going on, Richard? So we have a special offer for our listeners. So the good folks at Brand Ozer Unlimited were kind enough to offer one of their fantastic training courses to any of our listeners that rate us on iTunes before February 14th, 2016. So if you rate and review us on iTunes, you'll receive access to their phenomenal course, The Developer's Guide to SQL Server Performance. Now, this is normally a $299 value, but it's all for you, all for you if you just rate and review us on iTunes. So if you go to awavethekeyboard.com slash rate us, you'll get all the details on how you get access to the course and actually how you rate us. This is a great opportunity for you to get some great training and helping out the show. If all I have to do is rate and review the show, I'm going to do it to my own show right now to get that course. Yeah. Have you actually rated us yet? Because I don't think I have. No, I haven't. But you know, now I have good incentive to. <laughs> I know. I, I'm going to need to do that. <laughs> So what else we got going on, Cecil? So coming up on January 26th, we have SouthFloridaSpeaks.net. That's going to be a really cool community event where we have different members of the .NET community talking about and really trying to answer the question of what can I do with .NET? We're going to have guys talking about mobile and the web and the cloud and, and really just showing you what you can do with the platform. It'll be a really cool networking event. There'll be refreshments and you know it'll just be a really fun time. So again, that'll be January 26th. Um, it's from 6.30 to 8.30, and it will be held at the Idea Center at Miami Day College. So check the show notes, and also look out at the Twitter account, and we'll tweet out the link where you could RSVP. Excellent. I know we also have the South Florida Code Camp coming up on February 20th, 2016 at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I know you'll be speaking, Cecil. I'll be speaking. We'll be doing some live shows there as well. You can go and register for the conference at SouthFloridaCodeCamp.com, and we hopefully... We'll see you there. So who are we talking to today, Cecil? So today we're talking to Mr. Buck Whitty. So Buck works on the Microsoft Machine Learning and Data Science team using data and technology to solve business 
and science problems. With over 30 years of professional and practical experience in computer technology, he's also a popular speaker at many conferences around the world. The author of over 650 articles and seven books on database and machine learning technologies. He also teaches database courses and sits on the data science board at the University of Washington and specializes in data analysis techniques. This episode is recorded on December 18th, 2015. And now our conversation with one of my favorite people, Buck Woody. And now, away from the keyboards, feature conversation. So, Buck, I know you and Rishi have a relationship. Uh, well, at least at that. least a little, a little bit more. Whoa! It's, more, bit, whoa. it's more platonic um, at times. <laughs> <laughs> at least a lot deeper relationship than I have with you. Hello. So, for <laughs> just to, just to bring me and our listeners up to speed, why don't mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about your story? Like, who are you, and how did you, you know, how did you get to the point that you are today? Yeah, great. Um, so a little history of Buck Woody. Uh, well, it starts out in the uh, Neolithic period. No, it's not quite that far back. <laughs> I was raised in the 60s, right? So uh, like every uh, boy in the 60s, and I was actually raised near, I, I, I lived near NASA. I was very, very poor, uh, but I knew a lot of people who worked at NASA. And so uh, I grew up on Star Trek, of course, like everybody should, uh, but the old one, the cool one with paper mache rocks and things like that. I always wanted to, because we, we didn't have a lot of money, um, I wanted a house someday. Uh, I wanted a motorcycle. I wanted a pool. And I wanted to work at NASA. Throughout my life, things got better. And, and all of those things occurred. I went in the military for a while. And when I got out, I ended up working for NASA and really super enjoyed that. Had a house with a pool and a dog and all those fun things. So, But stayed in technology the whole time. And, and really, the undercurrent of all of it was data. I was always working, you know, with data. Again, when I first started out with computers, the first one I built was a little hobby system. Uh, what was this thing? I built it on a Zilog chip. And I put, literally put everything together myself. You couldn't operate it near a radio because it was so much RF that would come out of this thing. <laughs> and uh, the, the, you know, the screen was a, was a black and white TV. They still have black and white TVs? I don't know. But anyway, it was a black and white TV. It was just a lot of fun. And I learned assembly to make my own operating systems and, and things like that. A, a lot of fun. So stayed with that, was, was in the military, as I mentioned, and did computers there. Um, the PC revolution happened while I was in, in 81. I had pretty much every kind of computer you can imagine at that time. And when I got out, I, uh, as I mentioned, went to NASA and worked there and, and enjoyed um, more computing and more data stuff. Mainframe related there, but then, you know, we'd broken out into uh, IBM OS2 and Windows uh, for work, uh, excuse me, Windows um, NT came out, new technology or what's next or whatever they used for the algorithm. But they asked our group at NASA, do you want to stick with OS2? We're going to keep a group for that and we're going to try out this new pilot of this thing from Microsoft. And I volunteered for that. And that's really kind of where my Microsoft story started. Went from NASA to U.S. Space Command, which is about 20 miles away uh, at Patrick Air Force Base over on the other side of Florida. And uh, worked there and put in a Windows for Workgroups network and Windows NT replacing a Sun Solaris network. And that was for about 5,000 seats. It was the largest project I'd ever done as a manager. And that was just an absolute ton of fun. Left there, went over and became... A, a system administrator on an HP Secure UX system for another part of the Air Force. Uh, again, I was a civilian at that point, but worked on uh, Oracle there. So that was my first introduction to sort of Oracle databases from the IBM mainframe world. That was when SQL Server came out. 
uh, well, 4.2 anyway, was where I started. Worked with 4.2 and then came over to the Tampa area and was a manager of a group that included, uh, one of my jobs included retaining the uh, AS400 interaction between that and SQL Server version 7, which was Ooh. the huge upgrade. And that was really a sea change. And uh, at that point, I wrote a couple of books on uh, SQL 7 and then uh, continued writing books and doing presentations at, at uh, events, various tech ed events and things like that. And uh, Microsoft contacted me and said, "Would you like to? Would you like to join the mothership?" And so it took a few months for me to be convinced to move to Redmond. But I did that. Worked on the product team up there on SQL Server, and uh, SQL Server 2008 was my product. And then uh, uh, left the product team and went out in the field for SQL Server. When Red Dog, which would become Azure, came out, I jumped on that on the what's called the incubation team there at Microsoft, which is our sort of startup environment. And uh, stayed with that for a while up in the Pacific Northwest. And I was all things Azure to everybody, which was really hard to sort of grok and really stretch me technically. Buck Woody is the cloud. I was, <laughs> something like that. Went from there to headquarters for Azure to be a worldwide technical specialist. I was one of three. So um, I really got to see how businesses run at that level. And that was an absolutely fascinating thing to do. I then uh, had drained pretty much all of the vitamin D out of my body in that 10 years and decided to move back to Florida. So I took a job with the Department of Defense, still at Microsoft, was an architect doing stuff for things and people. Uh, here and then once I was that's not vague enough but no, it's not it's vague probably enough. I'll probably be picked up right after this uh, interview and then uh, after that uh, wanted to get back out because I because of the security clearance I wasn't allowed to blog or, or do presentations or travel or things like that uh, I wanted to get back into this and and the data science team had an opening under the new leader Joseph Soros who I really like really great guy so I uh, called up and said, have you, got a, have you got a place for me? And they said, yes, uh, we've acquired the Revolution Analytics team, the R, uh, which is going to become Windows R server. Uh, would, you, would, you be, would you be interested in joining that? And I'm like, absolutely. So that's what I do now. Uh, so I'm back on the product team technically, although it's an interesting role in that I still face customers and partners, which um, is new for the product teams to do. That used to be left to the field and marketing. And now the product teams are becoming far more uh, engaged with customers and so on. I think it's a great move, and I'm uh, just absolutely loving life. So that's that's kind of brought you up to date on on where I am. I've written a few other books. I teach at the University of Washington, a database programming course up there, uh, and I do presentations and things like that. That sounds like so much history. So I gotta I gotta pull it back a little bit. Sure. Well, I mean, it, you did cover what two, three thousand years there. Yeah, there's several several epochs, is the way we call it. So I want to talk about your. Air Force experience, because I don't think we've had a lot of people on the show specifically talk about what it's like to be in the military. And I've never been in the military personally either. So could you tell us a little bit about why you decided to join the Air Force and, and what was your time like there? Sure. I was, uh, when, when I finished high school, we were still, you know, fairly uh, poor. Uh, my, my real dad died when I was very little, and so we just didn't have anything and, and didn't have a car and things like that, you know, boo-hoo. Um, but I just, you just sucked it up, and my mom never told me I was poor, but but I knew we didn't have things. And so uh, at the time, this is, uh, you know, 70s, if you didn't have a lot of money, you didn't go to college. There weren't nearly the programs set up that there are now, and taking a loan out was, was laughable. There's no way you could do that. So I had the grades to get scholarships, but I had no way to eat or sleep. I've worked formally with a paycheck since I'm th since I was 13, but I I paid my own way through a private high school. So and I bought a car, 
And so essentially I had no money when I got out of high school. So it was either the military or try and figure out how to go make my way in the world on my own. And I knew the military could give me what I was looking for, you know, serve my country and also to get the education I needed and the experience, all three of those. And I wanted desperately to travel. And so my first assignment in the military was, uh, well, I went, you know, basic training is for the, for the Air Forces in Texas. And then from there, we go to something called tech school or did at the time. And uh, I trained with the, that um, back then they called it an electronics technician, ET. That's what did, um, which is kind of funny. They did computing and so on. So I kind of jumped into that. Um, because I graduated with some honors out of basic, I was uh, I had a different rank. So when I came into tech school, I was automatically in charge of a particular flight. But our flight, the the Navy and the Marines trained with the Air Force for electronics. This was in Biloxi, Mississippi. So my flight had Marines and Navy in it, and they don't they they don't always get along. Um, I'll, I'll put it that way. And um, they also believe that the Air Force isn't a service. It's a, a business that kills people. So uh, it was an interesting time in my leadership development to lead a flight that was inspected every day, consisting of mostly not my, uh, you know, Air Force people. <laughs> so that was fun. Um, from there, I went over to Europe and lived for a few years and was in computing right away. And again, this is right at the birth of um, you know computers coming into the mainstream. So we actually had Zenith Z100 systems, which were CPM-based, um, used big eight-and-a-half-inch drives. Nice. Uh, yeah, and uh, so I wrote some programs. Uh, we, we literally had Edlin Basic. What else did we have? I think... Ed- Edlin, Ed, I haven't heard of that in years. Yeah, yeah, that was that was back again. CPM, and then Ed came out after that, obviously for for DOS, right? When DOS came out, but DOS yeah. wouldn't have run on these computers anyway. But anyway, I I wrote some code that we used, and the base commander made me. He gave me a title of. Um, Small computer affairs, which I thought was kind of funny. But anyway, I would get farmed out. Essentially, I was a consultant as a sergeant and would get farmed out to whatever department was putting in their computers. And I would I would do that. I would set up everything, wiring, computers, the whole nine yards. The military was great. It's very, very structured. I loved the Air Force. I'm not certain I would have done well in another branch, but the Air Force was great. But it is bureau, you know, it's bureaucratic. And it's government, so there are some some speed differences between doing that. And and then I got married when I was in the Air Force. My wife was also in the Air Force. And three months after we got married, I got sent uh, to a base close to Russia uh, for a year, um, remote, with 300 of my closest friends and not my wife. (laughs) And did stuff for things that we do from space now. So that base is not there anymore. I wouldn't trade my time in the military for anything, but I won't say that it was, um, you know, a, a, a bed of roses by any any stretch. The time in Alaska was hard. I mean, I, I think it's it's interesting, you know, during the eras that you were talking about, the technology, the SR-71, even the space program, the kind of things that they did with such little computing power is is amazing to me to these days. Where the cell phones we have on are more powerful than the computers that got us to the moon. Well, you know, it brings it back. Uh, people don't realize the backup computer uh, in the shuttle for a while was a was a, an HP 10 uh, calculator. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. But and it, it really was. I've, I've worked um, when I worked at NASA. I worked on uh, Endeavor was the bird that I worked on, and there are two computers in the front. Everything is triple redundant in a shuttle. 
model. And the technology is actually quite old on purpose. They don't want something brand new. There's no heads-up displays or anything like that. It's very basic stuff because you don't want to be in space trying out something new because you really can't, you know, just send out for parts or whatever. But <laughs> the computers that we had in the in the cockpit at the time, there were two, one on the left and one on the right. And the, the boxes, they were four-bit computers. Oof. Yeah, they were four-bit computers. Now, again, all the processing is done, you know, down down, you know, in Houston. Yeah. And then transmitted the the space center where I worked. Our goal was to get a bird back and get it off the ground. And then there's, you know, Houston took over from there. And then JPL did anything that was involving the pure rocket stuff. So, yeah, it was interesting times. And, and you're right. You know, you, you mentioned there just a moment ago about technology and where it's come from. It, it occurs to me in my very, very extraordinarily long life that... Technology really revolves around two big, gigantic memes. The first is the ability to kill each other. Uh, there's a lot of technology that we invent that society benefits from, but was originally invented to, to you know, to, to to fund the war machine kind of thing. And then the other one is uh, talking to each other. Pretty much, I would I would have to guess. I'm guessing that a huge percentage, maybe you know, seventy, eighty percent of technology is invented so we have another way to talk to each other. I mean, from the telegraph to now. Everything is just another way to talk to each other, which we eventually, by the way, come to despise yeah, right. and, and create another one that's quote unquote better. We hate email, so we make Slack. Then Slack doesn't do enough for us, so we add permanent messages and we add groups and so on. And so I'm like, so email. Um, anyway, uh, I digress. <laughs> but it, it does it, it does appear to me now to bring it all tie it all back together to what we were talking about earlier. To me, and this is what's on my UW bio, I believe that all computing is merely rearranging data that's that's sort of my core technological belief every single bit of computing is just rearranging data so to me data is the core which is why i've put my career you know for 30 years at the data center that to me that's i don't care if it's data science or database administration or database programming or whatever it's it's data everything else is um syntactic sugar on top of data it's kind of funny you said that because the other day I was talking to some students and I said something kind of similar to that. What I told them was the core point of technology is really the transfer of information, mm-hmm. right? Like I want to take this piece of information, I want to give it to you. I want to move it from, from place to place, right? Whether I'm storing it on a disk or I'm pushing it over the network or I'm displaying it on a screen. It's how can I efficiently share information? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too when you hear about a secure network, um, you know, which was my um, <laughs> which was my focus for uh, this past while. the The interesting thing about that is that those are two antithetical terms, aren't they? I mean, you know, you're saying, okay, I want to make sure um, that I share this network, but I want to make sure no one can see it secure. I always found that to be kind of funny. So yeah. I, I had looked. The only other, the two major technologies that I think that will, if you if you enter them, technological areas, I should say, that you will always have a job for the rest of your life. The first is anything to do with data, and the second is anything to do with security. Yeah, that's true. I think that the one has some core foundations. Data has some core foundations that are like chess. They're easy to learn the basic moves, and then you have an infinite number of games after that. Whereas security changes so often, it's harder to keep up, and it's also kind of a, a, a no-win situation. 
but that no-win situation means you'll always be employed. So I went out and got my security certifications and CISSP and other things to have that as well. But uh, And I investigated, do I want to be, do I want to switch from sort of focusing my life on data to security? But I've, I, I just love the data area. I really do. So let me, let me ask you a question back to your time at NASA and working mm-hmm. on the Space Shuttle Endeavor. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what was that like? What was it like working with those team of individuals on a, on a particular bird to get her back up and running and back into space for, you know, I guess at that point, it'd be 10 to two weeks at a time? Yeah, no, it was originally intended, you know, Congress was told, so this is kind of interesting. I was working on a guy's system one day and, and you'd work in these offices. I was on the IT, I was in IT area, and we had something called SPDMS, and that's the Shuttle Processing and Data Management System. So our team was involved with the mainframe out to these terminals, and there were various terminals, and then we got uh, OS2, IBM OS2 systems that we had terminal emulators on, 3270 terminal emulators. And we also had what were called Apollo workstations back in the day, which were very similar to the Sun workstations that replaced them for any of the engineering work. So my job was to go around and um, make sure, uh, you know, sometimes it was literally just replacing a terminal. Um, and sometimes it was, you know, installing a statistical analysis software on the mainframe so that they could use it and, and so on. So all different kinds of things back in the day. You carried both a, uh, a you know, an, an algorithms book and you carried a soldering iron in your van. And so I would get to NASA and you would you'd get your orders for the day from a database we had, which was I had written, believe it or not, in DBase. Uh, and I when I left many years later, they were still using it because it did what it was supposed to do. You'd get a little gun, a little scanner gun like you worked at Walmart, and you would go out and you'd scan the computer and, and we'd put barcodes on all the doors and you'd scan the door and that would sort of be your ticket that you were working on a system. You'd work on the system and then you'd scan the system and scan the door as you walked out and that, that formed some tracking and I'd, I'd written that system. So I went to this guy's office one day, so I went all over. I literally got to work on sort of everything and I'll tell you a funny story about an Amiga at, uh, at NASA in a minute. And, and a Commodore Pet, which, ooh, yeah, at NASA. And so I went to this guy's office, and I noticed he had all these models. Like you see, like when you see Picard in the Enterprise, and he's got all the models of the Enterprise, you know, in his yep. office or whatever. He had that, but for rockets. And he had the Saturn V, and he had a whole bunch of ones that looked very interesting. And I asked him, what's this one? Because it looked like a, a rocket with, uh, if you can picture, the shuttle sitting on top of it. And he said, well, the original design that we wanted after, you know, because after the, the, the Saturn was super expensive to shoot up, right? And so they wanted a reusable space rocket, something that didn't, that didn't go away every time you used it. So he said, we, our design was to keep stage one and two of the Saturn V platform, which we already had and we knew how to build and we could turn the crank. But then to put a reusable, non, no engines, um, a flight vehicle on top of it that acted as a space glider so that you could bring back down. And this is similar to the Hermes stuff and, and some of the other things that the Japanese were working on at the time in their space agency. He said it had the advantage of you didn't need to carry much weight 
in the orbiter vehicle, but it had a large payload. He said eventually it was the it was a space minivan. He said what we would do is when we came back down, there would be some ohms pods uh, in the front and back of the of the uh, orbiter vehicle that would basically give you uh, they'd mix uh, hypergolic type fuels, fuels that will um you know that will explode when mixed with oxygen. So we'd have liquid oxygen in these balls, and then they would mix with this other fuel, and you'd essentially get guidance jets that would put you back in the orbit to land on Earth. And they were trying to get it where you could land on a runway that's, you know, quite short, actually. And so you didn't have to always come back to the space center. And it would be fairly light and could be transported and so on. But the problem was, and this is, again, from what he told me, how accurate this is, who knows, but he seemed to be in a position of knowledge. And he said, the problem was it didn't involve enough states. Because up till that time, the, the, the rockets were built in only a couple of states, and Florida was involved, and California was involved, and that was it. Well, all of the senators at the time, you know, were in the Vietnam War, and the, the whole Watergate thing, and so the space program was changing, and its budget was getting shrunk, and it didn't involve enough districts. So they came up with the orbiter to where you put the engine in the orbiter. Well, now it's got a ton of weight, so it needs fuel. So they stuck a fuel tank on the front of it. And then that was too heavy with the fuel, so you stuck two rockets to the side of it. And so it's this Frankenstein thing that's essentially around the decision of we have to put an engine on the orbiter, not on the lift vehicle. That's the only time the engine is used is when on takeoff um, for, what, three, four minutes until you get um, no return to landing, no RTLS. That's right. And so this whole thing, and it was a decision around how much, how many states can we get to vote for this? That was how the shuttle was built and tragically led to some design flaws that ended up in the Challenger years later. Yep. Yep. So interesting thing. Well, you were asking about, you know, working there. I mean, going into the vertical assembly building, uh, a building so large that it has its own weather system. <laughs> yes. You, you can go inside and it can be raining inside, misting inside because it's developed so much uh, atmosphere inside of itself and moisture. Going, I, I once worked on, and this is the Amiga story, I got called and they said, we need you to go to this certain place. And at the time, we were still classified at NASA. And, and so I said, okay. And I went there and they made me do the full suit up, which is uh, you put on the sort of the Intel looking suit because you're in the parts per million environment. Yep. And they bring me into this room and they said, um, we have a problem with the long duration exposure facility, the LDEF which was sent up on one shuttle to do, it was just a big tube that had experiments all over it from different nations. It was sent up to be up there for six months, then Challenger happened, and it was up there for like three and a half years. Wow. And so they had brought it back, and before we gave the trays back to everybody, we were using a micro camera to film every square millimeter of the platform before we give the experiments back so we could kind of get the benefit of the experiments before we gave them back to the countries that paid for them. They were running this micro camera on an Amiga, an Amiga 500 with a spirit board in it. Yes. And um, the, my boss had heard, the reason I got sent over there, my boss had heard that I, I had an Amiga 500 at home. And the, the video was shaking. It was interlacing hard. And they couldn't figure out why. No one, all these scientists were around and couldn't figure out why. Well, I, I was very poor still. Uh, and, uh, even, you know, we, we, we didn't make a lot of money at the time. Um, and I didn't use the air conditioning at my house there in Melbourne. And my Amiga would shake when it got hot. And so when I walked in, they said, do you think you could take a look at this? And everybody says, if you can't, don't worry about it. You know, we, nobody's been able to. And I said, can you take the top off? And they said, sure. And I said, can you get me a fan? 
and they brought in a desk fan and the images straightened out and I got an award for fixing <laughs> the for fixing the Amiga. I got called up in front of NASA and get, it's one of my proudest moments. I got a little trophy here with that. So uh, nice. and it was only because I couldn't afford air conditioning at my house in public. <laughs> because they didn't pay you enough, you were able to get an award. <laughs> And one time I went out and we had a weather station and there's tons of these weather monitoring stations around NASA. And this was a very old one and it wasn't critical. But when I got there, it was run by a Commodore PET, P-E-T computer. And if you want to, you can go look that up to see what that is and how embarrassing that is. And it had, you know, they had the old CRT, the cathode ray tubes, yep. and it had burned the phosphorus end to where you couldn't tell if it was off or on Ooh. because it had burned the image on the screen. Oh. <laughs> it was pretty impressive. So, yeah, it was absolutely one of the best jobs I ever had that I had to leave. Uh, at the time, the computer revolution was happening. I made very little money. You are rather restricted in what you can do there, believe it or not. I, I stayed longer than I should, but I, I loved every second. I used to take my lunch. I used to uh, take some cheese and, and fruit and, and homemade bread and some iced tea, and I'd go sit out on, uh, on the pad where Gus Grissom and Apollo 1, where that blew up. Yeah. And that's right that's right next to the water. Yep. And I would sit on that pad and eat my lunch and listen to Paul Harvey every day on the AM radio. We were actually on that pad about a year ago. Awesome. That was a fun place to be. I used to go up there all the time. One time I went up uh, in a building near pad 39A and and there was um the scientists I work with. <laughs> so we we the computer lab was next to the chemistry lab and so they had all these scientists in there and they were older guys and they they were like you think and uh I I drove up in my truck one day after I was done with my runs and these scientists were up on the roof and they had mud in their hands, white coats, ties, horn rim glasses, just like you think old guys. They were on top of the roof of a, um, a hardened facility and they were throwing the mud on the ground from up there. And then they would run down the spiral steps around the outside of the building, stare at the ground, argue with each other, pick up some more mud and go do it again. So I'm like, okay, 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 I got to see what this is. So they were trying to, to vet out the theory that the moon came from the earth after, after an impact with a larger body oh. during our early formation phase. And they were throwing the mud because they had calculated the viscosity of the mud and what would happen if a planet hit the earth at a certain speed and the viscousness and would a circular body come out? And it was perfect. They were absolutely perfect circular bodies that come out. So that's the kind of stuff that you saw. And one more story from NASA. I had a, a friend of mine, Dr. Harold. I love this guy. Super old. He worked on the NASA program. And uh, this was in, you know, it was back in the day, right? So this is when I was a kid. And this is when Star Trek was out. Well, when Star Trek was out, the scientists there were fascinated by Star Trek. They were trying to kind of grok some of the things they were doing. Uh, even self-opening doors didn't exist in Star Trek's day. They came, you know, sort of in mass in, in mass unit. They had been invented, but they weren't around. And so, you know, these were new things. So what they would do is they worked at night, and um, Dr. Harold had landed a small camera on the moon that they would turn towards the uh, Earth to calculate, you know, how they were going to do the moon landing. But then they had to turn it away when the sun would hit it at a certain angle and let the lens cool. So during that time, he would go downstairs and eat his, his uh, uh, dinner, which was in the middle of the night, you know, because of his schedule. And they would watch Star Trek. 
And the scientists in the room would debate, could you really do that? Would that work? How does this work? And so on. So then he would go back to his work. Well, in the day, you know, they're trying to get Congress to pay for things. So they have this big glass room and they had these guys in suits and ties and the white coats. And, you know, you could go watch them work. That was considered a thing. And of course, the mainframes had the blinky lights and all that. And so he's standing there after dinner one night working on something, and he hears a voice behind him that says, fascinating. He turns around, and it's Leonard Nimoy on a tour. <laughs> he's telling me this very flat, you know, because he's, he's just one of those kind of World War II vet kind of guys, you know, and he's just telling me this very flat. And he's like, I thought it quite interesting that while I was downstairs watching his work, he was upstairs watching my work. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, they used to actually the Star Trek cast used to come to NASA all the time, even when I was there. James Doohan hated it because everybody would say, can you come fix this? Ha ha. You know, that kind of. <laughs> and, but uh, they, they used to come by all the time. They used to come around all the time. Very fascinating place to work. Loved it. Loved it. But uh, it's a different world now. Don't know that I could work there today. Not the same uh, energy that I felt in, in the time. And, but they do amazing work and amazing stuff. So would you say that your love for space and and NASA in general came from just the fact that you grew up like a little bit down the street? Yeah, it had to be that I was bathed in that atmosphere, even though I was very poor and, and no one really took a lot of interest or care. We didn't have these hour of code events and things that I just love that Microsoft's doing now. It's one of the reasons I'm here. Bill Gates uh, at the time and, and now Satya still has a real passion around kids getting involved in STEM, uh, the science, technology, engineering, and math. I was never encouraged by anybody, none of my teachers, but I just inherently loved science. Mr. Spock was my absolute hero. I'm not good at math, and loving science is the only thing that got me to study hard and work hard. So I was bathed around people, just in that world of people at NASA and in engineering when I got older, I just sort of stayed in the, the whole astronomy thing. I'm a huge fan, all, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a science nerd, but I, I actually look back now and I'm really sad that no one, you know, back then people just didn't take time with kids like they do today, which is, which is what I try to do as often as I can to sort of give back. I know as we're, as we're wrapping up here, I, I first saw you at a, at a tech ed many, many moons ago. And I had no idea who you were, but I did see you, <laughs> somebody was walking out and you just gave them just the hardest time ever. And I loved every minute of it. What are some of your tips for new speakers or even for uh, speakers that have been doing it for a while to become a, a better communicator? Sure. Um, there's a few things. And by the way, whenever I do pick on the audience, it's usually somebody I know and I, and I, I know I can get away with that sort of thing because that can go horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> yes. um, it really can. So I try to be, you know, I try to be as, as uh, avant-garde and cutting edge as I can, but that's more calculated than it might appear. It's always dangerous to be harmful to other people, and I would never do anything to, that would do that. However, what I would say is to be successful in a talk, it, it's important to think about at the very beginning what you're trying to accomplish. Um, all speaking is, is three things, right? It's either to inform, to motivate, or to entertain. Uh, those are the only forms of speaking. And you can do all of those things within one, but you have a goal, you have a king. You've always heard that, uh, you know, content is king whenever you're hearing about speaking, public speaking. Content is king. Content is king. Make sure you know what you're doing, blah, blah. And I don't believe that to be true. I believe that content is the pawn, and I believe that you're, what you're trying to accomplish is the king. 
And so I do less around memorizing a series of points or even worse, putting your notes in the PowerPoint that you're showing everybody so that they just read your screen. What I try to do is have what I'm trying to get you to do or change or stop or whatever, or to inform you about so you can then go figure out if you care about doing or changing. I try to make that the king. And I want to make sure at the very end, I ask, did I do that? Are, are you are you informed now? Did I miss anything? So first thing I would say is make sure you know what your king is. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to inform, to motivate, or entertain as your primary? Uh, secondly, I would say that you should set waypoints and not a script. And And what I mean by that is this. If I were to ask you how you get to your house, you don't remember every single turn and the distance between every single street. You you just remember, go to the Walmart, turn left, look for the crack house. I'm the third one on the left from there. So you remember these waypoints. And I, I think within my deck, I try to have three to five points, never more, no matter even if it's all day. I try to do three to five points. And those are my waypoints. And I know what those are so that if I get lost in between... I can still get back to where I was going. You know, let's say there's a detour or something that happens, I can get back to where I'm going. And the third piece of advice I would give would be always have three presentations ready. Uh, one for full tech, everything's working and the lights are on and your computer's functioning and your demo's okay and all that. Low tech, where one of those things fails, what am I going to do if this demo doesn't work? Do I, do I have a video queued up where I could show it working? Do I have a slide shot of something that where it worked? Am I going to stop and talk about this, about why it failed, or am I going to do that? And and then the no tech. In other words, nothing's working. What could I what could I say for the time I'm allotted that would still be valuable to the people that are there? So I always have those three ready all the time. Um, so those would be the three pieces of information I would I would probably tell a new speaker is know your king. You know, have the three sessions ready and use waypoints. We'd like to thank Buck for being a guest on the show. It was great to have the opportunity to chat with him. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a comment on the website at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Also remember to check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast and on Twitter at podcast. You can also follow me at Cecil Phillip and Richie at Jars. That's J-O-R-R-I-S-S. You can subscribe to the show via the website or on iTunes. And if you really want to know what makes us tick, Sign up to the newsletter where you'll get extra episodes and behind-the-scenes access to Away From The Keyboard. And don't forget to rate us at awayfromthekeyboard.com slash rate us to get your free Brent Ozar Unlimited training course. Next on Away From The Keyboard, we'll have Guy in a Cube, Adam Saxon. We were in Toys R Us or something. I think we were looking for a Halloween costume for the kids or a toy or something. And we're going by and the kids were like, hey, look at this. It's a sword. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a sword of omen. And they're like, yeah, that's awesome. And my wife was like, no, like we're not going to get I'm like, can I, can I get it? So do you think they ever let him out? I hope so. But then he put himself in the cube. I, I, I don't know, man. But I think he likes his cube. There's a lot of cool stuff in his cube. I wouldn't mind being in his cube either. You know, I wouldn't mind checking out the cube too, but he'll have to come out first. Yeah, agree, <laughs> agree, agree. See you next week. Bye. to thank you for listening to Away From The Keyboard. 
As a reminder, we will have new episodes each and every week. You can interact with us on Twitter at AFTK Podcast or at awayfromthekeyboard.com. Hasta luego. I was speaking one time at, at Pass, and I was on the product team at the time at the Pass Summit. Sorry, Richie. Um, and I was on I was on the product team, and we were demoing a brand new feature, which literally had been built the night before. The final build was the night before, so I had a fairly lengthy script, uh, a, a really lengthy script, like several several dozen lines, which I don't like to show because what are you really doing there? But anyway, I was going through. And, and highlighting a line, and I'd run it, and I'd highlight a line, and I'd run it, and I'd highlight a line, and I'd run it, and I would explain what was happening. And so this was one of the big rooms, and I had, like, multiple screens going, you know, in the whole nine yards. It was a really big room. Uh, I think a couple a couple thousand people is the big room. So anyway, a lot of people wanted to see this feature. And so I was showing it, and I hit the go button, which I had practiced this thing 20, 30 times, which is another advice, always practice. And uh, nothing but red errors showed up in the result. I mean, just a litany of them. And my mind was literally like, no, this is not happening. It can't happen because I practiced. So there is no human way. And you're doing that thing where you're standing there in dead air and you don't know what to do. I didn't know where to start because I'm like, there's there's nothing that could be wrong. And so I switched back to the code and I thought, well, I'm just going to, so I turned around, I looked at the audience and I said, now, what do we think just happened? Because I had no clue. (laughs) And so some poor guy raised his hand and goes, um, did you miss a semicolon there in line 13? And I inadvertently, I had spaced over the semicolon. And so I said, how many of you think he's right? And like several tentative hands went up and I thought, well, in for a penny, in for a pound, right? And I typed it in. <laughs> I typed it in and it ran. And I'm like, very nice way to pay attention. And I threw him a T-shirt like I had planned it. And I literally, you know, like you get that feeling that you're going to pee on yourself. It was like one of those. That was a good comeback. It was It was all I had. It was, was all I had. Comeback. And everybody was like, that was really good the way you kept our attention like that. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's uh, – <laughs> That was what I was going for. Yep. <laughs> High fives all around. <laughs> nice. And I was teaching last uh, uh, a week and a half ago in, in at Microsoft to a room full of data scientists, and I mean like a hundred plus data scientists in the room. And uh, my computer shut down, and I I don't mean a little like it went black. It went black, and I I had like two experiments and machine learning running, two or three tabs and a web page open to show them where to go find more information and my deck and the computer just shut down.
which is um which was bad but i uh, again i always have the three presentations ready so i had the deck up on the podium system and i just switched over to the deck while i rebooted my computer and kept talking and gave them an assignment while i got it back and so uh it worked but you just you just have to be ready for that yeah i i think uh you know and i've seen you do that uh buck where something goes wrong and you're and you just go, and, and you're and you continue to speak and you're continuing to be engaged but you're out there fixing something behind the scene and it's it's really a talent to do that you know if when you're a first time speaker and something like that happens you just get that initial wave of panic and 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 whatnot but if you've planned for it and you're like you'll, you'll catch yourself and say oh wait i know what i'm supposed, I know to, be doing supposed here to do because, here yep yeah it's all about being and, ready yeah you're flustered for a little bit you just for a second or two and you're like oh okay i'm gonna go and do this because i planned for that's it right. and that's right and it's okay that. to admit you know, say, well, looks like that didn't work. Let's move on. Here's what I was trying to show you. And you move on. You you move on. You know, and I, I taught a session one time um, at University of Washington called Your Audience Wants You to Win. Um, and, you know, every we always think that everybody in the audience is sitting out there judging us or waiting for us to fail or that they know more than we do and so on. And, in fact, your audience wants you to win. They, they, they're with you. They're, they're not going to attack you or anything. So um, I think it's important to keep that in mind that the audience is there because they want um, they want you to they want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, uh, that actually happened to me at the summit this year where I, I was running a demo and the outputs were supposed to be the same, uh, but they weren't, and I didn't and I didn't catch it. And I I had changed the demos to 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 make them just kind of flow a little more seamlessly. And someone in the audience says, "But that doesn't match that." And I, I kind of looked over and I said, well, you've just found the first demo failure of this presentation. Thank you very much. Well, they're supposed to match. <laughs> and you just kind of just kind of move on, you know. <laughs> well, I you know, I've actually now I, I actually I actually hope for a failure. Um, one of the best presentations I ever went to was um, was uh, with it was internal. So I think I'm allowed to talk about this. But Mark Rusinovich was giving us an internal uh, Rasanovich, depending on how you want to pr- pr- yep. pronounce it, uh, was giving us, and if you don't know who that is, um, shame on you and go look him up because he's freaking amazing. And, amazing. and he uh, was giving an internal presentation. And we have a guy from Russia who does uh, penetration testing for us, who tries to break our software. And uh, he's pretty he's pretty scary and impressive. I think he's mostly legal and everything. Um, <laughs> he was in the audience with us. He's a paid consultant. He's not a softy. He's uh, but but he but he's got full rights and everything. So Mark was showing off. I can't remember if it was Windows 2012 or the Forerunner to Windows 10 or something. But he had his laptop and was talking about some new enhancements he had made to help prevent viruses from being able to take over memory space. And so he said, well, uh, uh, so-and-so is here. I can't say the guy's name, but so-and-so is here. Um, do you have any of your tools with you? And the guy just smiled, right? So he's got like this litany of USB sticks in front of him. And and so uh, Mark says, well, here. And he unplugs his laptop. You know, And there's probably a 1,000 people in this conference. And he walks down and hands a Russian hacker his laptop logged in on his Microsoft login. Wow. And says, yeah. um, do your thing. So the guy, like, you know, he's he's looking through the various USB sticks, like, which one should I do? <laughs> <laughs> and he sticks the USB stick in, and the screen goes to one of those things where it puts different colored characters on the screen, you know, that kind of thing. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, it just literally takes over. So Mark took the laptop back up on stage and debugged it live. Oh. And that was, and he fixed it. And he did it in about three minutes. And he said, oh, I, <laughs> he said, oh, I see what you were doing here. You're running this kind of, inge- okay, I got, so here's, let me show you what he's doing. And the guy's just smiling over there or whatever. But it was amazing to watch that. And I love that um, sort of conversational a feeling. So I've had a couple of my demos to where the script didn't work right, and I'm like, "Oh, this is perfect. Let's go find out what happened." From a from a, a sequel perspective, Rob Farley does does something that's that's similar He's to that. Great. Too. Rob is an yeah. amazing presenter. Really well done. If you get a chance to see him and you haven't, go see him. Yeah, yeah. If you know of any YouTube videos or any recordings of the, these people, like we could add those to the show notes, and you know, yeah, people that are listening could, that uh, could add those. We'll definitely have to look those up. Yeah, when when Mark Rusinovich is is ever in uh, the the tech, what's the new tech ad now? Ignite. Uh, yes. At Ignite. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Uh, you, you you definitely need to, to block off him off on your schedule. Well, and, not and only just, that, you need to get in there early. Um, that's when right. When he does our internal presentations, now we have a we have an internal uh, conference. When he does those, um, it's a given you won't get a seat. So people will go in there two hours before and just you know take uh, their laptop and work waiting for his session. So are you trying to say it's like me going to Star Wars two and a half hours early <laughs> last night and still not getting a great seat yeah, because we're, we're, people were there for four hours? Yeah, we're kind of like that except with, with tech, so we're kind of sad. Okay, do you want to hear my impression of a policeman pulling over a dog that was driving? Sure, let's do it. Okay. I was going to say, can I say no? Yeah, yeah you, <laughs> you can say no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it anyway. Um, so here it is, ready? A, do- a policeman who just pulled a dog over. Do you know why I pulled you over? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Okay. How about Walter White when the SQL server asks him as the DBA to get admin permissions to start the service? You ready for that one? Oh, let's go. No, you clearly don't know who you're talking to. So let me clue you in. I do not ask the admin. I am the admin. You think I need permissions to start a service? No, I am the one who gives permissions <laughs> truthfully i've never seen breaking bad i haven't either <laughs> that's funny but i i do all kinds of random things in my head when i'm supposed to be at a meeting so anyway shall we proceed and, and this is why you people need to follow you on twitter <laughs> well i just have random thoughts and i just like for the rest of the world to be the beneficiary of them <laughs> and i don't i don't really filter anything no no no, there's there's none of that. No. That's interesting. This is going to be an interesting show. I think so. <laughs> Do you wonder ever if the receptionist um, at the sperm bank when you're leaving says, thanks for coming? Do you think? I, that- I have never <laughs> been to a sperm bank, so I really don't know what she thinks. <laughs> so that one, that one. I think you missed it. Yeah, you missed that it. That one may need to be edited out. I'll leave that to your okay to your discussion. Sure. <laughs> that sounds like a bonus uh no, I like Crap, that. I like right. the which I saw what you did there. Yeah, yeah. 
Nice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I need to spiel.